Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Kenneth, for leading us in our service. I hope it's been a wonderful time listening to our brothers and sisters in Christ from EMU, lead, lead us in worship of God in song. Amen? It's been good. And so continue to pray for them to be strengthened because they've been working flat out from Friday night at the concert, full day yesterday uh, in the training masterclass. And all our people who helped out, uh, grateful thanks from my heart because it's hard work doing all this over the long weekend. So we are still into the book of Genesis and the readings that have been before you are very, very important. My nephew came from Australia this week and um, three young children, three beautiful young children, two boys and a girl. Two boys are older, the girl is the youngest. And uh, one night we hosted them to dinner. As we hosted them to dinner, we had a fun time, a great time. We ended at dinner by him, my nephew, saying to his three young kids, you know, uh, I've always told you that uh, Uncle, Uncle Chris is a pastor and he's been a pastor for a long time. Remember, I used to tell you, any hard questions you have, you wait to Singapore and you ask him. And so they fired away. <laughs> the number one uh, child that fired away was the middle one. I think he was a seven, eight-year-old. And he asked, if God created everything, who created God? <laughs> if God created everything, who created God? I think it's a question we ask. Then second question, Jesus has died for our sin. Does that mean there's no sin in heaven? How do we know there's no sin in heaven? And he just kept going on. I thought, that's really brilliant. And um, <laughs> so I tried to give them the best answers I, I could at that level, right? And uh, I finally said, uh, maybe I started my time by saying, you know, in God's eyes, the one who should give you the answer is your father. <laughs> that's biblically correct, don't you think so? <laughs> but then I tried. I don't, I don't know how well I did, but... Um, it does back the question and lead us to our first point, which is, life is full of questions. Have you ever wondered why, who God is, who we are in His image, what on earth are you doing here in the world, in Singapore, anywhere that you have been born and lived? And we know this saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's true. The unexamined Christian life is even more not worth living. You know why? Because if God is not God and Jesus is not Lord, you and me have just staked our life on a nothing, on no one and nothing. And so every week I'm just wasting my time, you're wasting your time, and we are doing this for nothing. And so we got to make sure that we examine this ever so often. Is there a God? Is there a true and living and a loving God? And that's what Genesis brings us to. So, in quick summary, Genesis is 50 chapters. And a very important way to understand is the way the, the writer has given us what we call a writing device, a literary device. And it says, these are the generations of. It appears 11 times in the 50 chapters. And every time you read this, these are generations of, it starts off a section. And the section could mean, these are, this is the family tree of, or this is the storyline of God working through Adam and his generation, Noah and his sons, the sons of Noah. And so that's a very important thing to take note that we noticed from last week. Yep. Okay, let's see. Next one. It's coming on. Okay. And so in Genesis chapter 1, 
we met a God of word, and God said, and God said, and God said. And so that's so important because our first introduction to God in the first chapter of the Bible is that He's a God of word, which makes absolute sense because the rest of the Bible is not God revealing Himself visually by statues, by idols, by dreams, by visions, but God revealing Himself mainly by speaking His Word. He creates by His Word, He rules by His Word, He sustains by His Word, He saves by His Word. This is the God of Word. That's why every word of God is precious. And men shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we meet of God of Word, God said. And this God, every word that He speaks is powerful. And it was so. And it was so. God said, let there be light, and it was so. God said, let there be day, and it was so. And it was so. God is powerful. And then He's a God of purpose because after He creates, He says, it's good, it's good, it's good. Six times. And finally, in Genesis 1.31, He says, superlative, it is very good. If God pronounces it good, it is good. Right? So when we go out there and we eat a meal, um, now Chinese New Year, taste cookies, etc., I might like it and say, ooh, yuck. And my wife says, hey, it's very nice. What do we call that? We call that subjective opinions. When God gives His opinion, it is thoroughly objective. And no one's going to quibble with Him. If God looks at the whole of creation and says it's good, all of us seated here must say, it is good. The danger is we look, God looks at creation and says it's good, then we think we can reach another conclusion which will come to again at the heart of the sermon. So we meet a God of order, and above all, we meet a God of three R's. He's a God of rule. He's a God of relationships. He's a God of rest. And all this you could pick up just by reading Genesis chapter 1. A God of rule, a God of relationships, a God of rest. And so by the time we dive into chapter 2, the message becomes clearer, especially of the three R's that are here. So, this is the count of the heavens and the earth. See, the device? So it starts off this section. This is the story of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up. No shrub, no plant. No shrub, no plant. Have you been to a place like that? Just mentally picture, no shrub, no plant. We call that a desert. We call that a wasteland. No shrub, no plant. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So mentally, as you try to recreate this, you get a picture of land, and then it has waters, right? But it is um, maybe wild, it is untended. It's waiting for the ultimate creature, men, to come and work it. And so God creates man to work this place. Now, you read this account, and the first thing that comes to mind is, didn't we read this in Genesis chapter 1? This is like a second creation account. That's not the way to read it. Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 2, is not a second creation account. It doesn't flow chronologically in terms of time. It flows logically. So if you could picture Genesis 1 as the opening scene of a musical. Have you been to a musical? If you haven't, that's how it opens. 
Bang! That's sound of music for the old ones. Les Miserables for the younger ones. Cats or whatever you watch. And then they play all the tunes that they're going to sing in that musical. By chapter 2, the spotlight falls, not on the heavens, not on the earth, but falls on men and women made in God's image. So there's a narrowing focus showing the importance is in God's design for men and women. So not a second creation account, but a focus. Why is this important? Watch the movement. And it will affect how we respond to God in belief, in faith and obedience. Genesis presents to us the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, what I call the God of the big picture. And part of the belief that you and I are to have is that God created the heavens and the earth. He's in control. Didn't Pastor, um, what's his name? Kenneth? <laughs> Pastor Kenneth? Just lead us in prayer, praying for the tensions between China and the US, which affects you, affects me. If we didn't believe that God is in charge of nations, we don't pray that prayer. He just prayed a prayer for our upcoming elections, whether it's this year or next year. If we don't think that God is sovereign over our nation, over our rulers, don't pray that prayer. It's a, it's a nonsense and it doesn't make sense. But because we believe that God is sovereign and the first introduction to His sovereignty, God of the big picture is in Genesis chapter 1. And the main title, the name, main name given to God is God there. But by Genesis chapter 2, He's God of the details. And the main name in which He reveals Himself to be known by is Lord Yahweh. Lord Yahweh. And so, two aspects of worshipping God. We worship Him as sovereign. We also worship Him as the personal, caring, loving, caring, intimate God who gives His name to us from chapter 2 as the Lord God. So, in deep theology or theological language, in chapter 1, He is transcendent. Transcendent means uh, He's out there at arm's reach. By chapter 2, he is imminent, the God who is with us. And the two sides of this God always have to be kept in mind. When your child falls sick, when things go wrong, you pray to the sovereign God of the universe and you pray for the healing of your child and that acknowledges his loving personal care. The doctrine of that is set in chapters 1 and 2. So to believe, do you believe that God is the God of the details of your life? Absolutely. While you believe that He's sovereign over the universe. So the very fact I could tell you of a dinner which was significant to me, a conversation that I had with my eight-year-old grandnephew, means that I believe that God was in that moment, in that meal. It wasn't just a meal that we had. And I could pull out a lesson, and hopefully they can remember the lesson, never to ask their granduncle, but always to ask their father for deep questions of life. God of the universe, God of my family, God of the details. And then now, the focus is on the creation of Adam. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground. Very important that our starting material, our base material is dust. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life 
and man became a living creature. And so I struggled to find a word to try and summarize this. How would you summarize that? Uniquely made, specially made, personally made, the hand of God. So it's, it's Chinese New Year, and uh, by God's grace, you know, as pastors, we get given different gifts, and truly we've been thankful all these years. And I've said to you, I love pineapple tarts, and every year people give me lots of pineapple tarts. And everyone that gives you will say, I personally made this, and I'll say, I personally will eat it. If you personally made it, I'll personally eat it. I won't give it away. And my love for tarts is idolatrous because you give me a thing. If the Holy Spirit doesn't con control me, I will go through it by the time I finish the sermon. Right. And so where was I? <laughs> so what you make is personal. It has your, has your touch. It has your love. This is God. Uniquely made. We are beautifully made. Personal touch of God. Two words to explain to you from the Hebrew into the English. Formed carries the idea of craftsman to craft. Designer to design. Right? So, when you walk down the supermarket... <laughs> now, let me quote my brother-in-law in Japan. He's retired now. For many years, 40, 50 years, he worked for the same company. He was a typical Japanese career man, what we call a typical Japanese salary man. Totally focused on just earning the bread and butter, bring it home to my sister, my late sister, who was his wife, and uh, she would um, buy the things, look after the family, etc. So knew nothing about the kitchen, knew nothing about food, knew nothing about cooking. But since he retired, he's become totally domesticated. Loves to cook. Every time he comes, he'll whip up some dishes that is perfected to time. So, you know, when you and me as teenagers, many of us, Young adults, walk down a supermarket aisle, look at vegetables, look at meat. What do you think? Nothing. You don't think anything when you look at meat and vegetables. When your mother or your father walks down that supermarket aisle, they look at vegetables, they look at meat, they are thinking dishes. When you and me think food, we think grab. We think deliveroo. You think food came through the internet. Right? That's not the way it is. You don't, you don't move from craftsman to craft. You don't move from the ingredients to the dish. Never. God is the first, ultimate designer to design, craftsman to what He crafted. So He moved towards us and He crafted us in His image. The next word is even more mind-blowing. He breathed into us. And I say this is God's public display of affection. Because the Hebrew word almost leans us to say, God kissed us with a kiss of life. And apart from God kissing us with the breath of life, you and me would have been dust. So that's why this is the first PDA. Or should we say not public display of affection, but personal display of affection. And please take note, friends, it is tender it is personal, it's intimate, it's special. Because this language is not used for anything else in a cosmos or anything else that He has made. It's used specifically for you and me. The only time we experience perhaps this tender, personal, intimate, special thing about creation is when a mother has just given birth and then the midwife or the gynae, the doctor, shows her the baby. 
And the mother, through all her strength, sees that and kisses the baby. The father kisses the baby. We fathers have the easy task. We just hold our wife's hands. And we think we brought that baby into life. We didn't. We just, I don't know what we did. <laughs> the next time you meet the breath of life is when you see it fade away. When you say goodbye to your grandpa, grandma, to your father and mother, you've done every possi everything possible to keep a loved one alive. But they're passing away because of old age, or more sadly, sickness. Everything, every prayer and every effort has gone to keep them, to give them one more breath, one more day, stay with us. And as pastors have seen, as pastors have seen this so many times, hardest thing to see is to see the last breath go out of a loved one. And before they breathe the last breath, you want to kiss them. And it's personal, it's intimate, it's special, it's unforgettable. Apart from God kissing you with the breath of life, you and me are dust. Agree? So what does that mean from day-to-day -day living? From day-to-day -day living from Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 1 and 2, every day you wake up from morning to night, the, the moment you stand in front of that mirror, you thank God for He has made you fearfully and wonderfully made. Turn to your neighbour and say to them, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Hello. Can you say that to your wife? Can you say that to your husband? I'm not asking you that I fear you. Right? <laughs> you're, you're fearf I'm you stand in front of the mirror and you say, no mistakes. There's no mistake in Christian. There's no mistake here. No one is a mistake. So last week we had our new member services Infant baptisms, child baptism, baptisms, transfers, etc. I'll always get them, parents who come forward to bring their children for child baptisms to say something that they notice already a characteristic in their baby, a characteristic in, in, their, in their infant, in their child. And this uh, couple that brought the child, the boy here, says uh, he's bright. He's got a bright and shiny spirit, cheerful spirit. And that boy, Rainer, is born with a huge um, vein problem. So he has a huge lump on his lips that looks like a tennis ball. And Rainer is bright and shiny and cheerful. That's the most standout thing about him. You and me must never look in the mirror and think that you are a mistake. You and me must never look in the mirror and think plastic surgery for God made you the way you are. That's thanksgiving to God. That's thanksgiving to God. He breathed into you the breath of life. Very important. And the Lord God planted the garden in Eden, in the east, which tells you that this is not a figurative place, that this is not a symbolic place, it was a real place. East, Eden. Don't go looking for it because it can't be found. You know why? Next week you'll find out why if you come. Thank you. And no, no, next week is the different sermon. It's not Genesis. It's Chinese New Year. And then <laughs> he put the man who he had formed. Notice that God invites us into the garden. 
you do not gate crash the garden, you don't, do not aspire to the garden, and Eden is, in some versions, translated into paradise. You do not gate crash paradise. You do not aspire to make paradise, men and women. It is something you are invited to because God creates it and then plonks you into it. And if God didn't plonk you into it and include you in Him and His purposes, you'll be outside Eden. I'll be outside Eden. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So you notice Adam, he, God gave him every tree and the tree was good for sight, uh, pleasant to the sight and good for food. Built into your God-designed DNA, you and me are always inclined to, you and me are always inclined to beauty and to food. So ask yourself, why, why do you go on holidays? You choose a holiday to see beautiful sights and for good food. Isn't that right? Anybody goes for holiday not for sights and for food, you're totally unusual. You get on a plane, SQ, JAL, sometimes they, they tell me, I haven't gone to Hokkaido before. You get on a plane in December to go to Hokkaido from Singapore. It's full of Singaporeans going to Hokkaido to ski. What do you go there for? The beauty of the snow and the wonderful sashimi. It's all built into you that you have an inclination to live this way. Beauty, an eye for beauty, a tummy for food was designed by God. It wasn't atoms and molecules getting together and say, let's put men together and let's give them an eye for beauty, an appreciation for food. No, friends, God put us together and gave us an eye for beauty and a tummy for food. And that's what you live for from day to day. Isn't that true? Or else why are you working so hard? Why go for holidays? Why spend thousands of dollars? Because you're hardwired for beauty and for enjoyment. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, two words, to work it, abad in the Hebrew, and to keep it, shama. And so we could say he made man a ruler, but he's a responsible ruler. So the two things don't seem to go together, right? I said, the previous point was, he's so completely cared for that God has given him every plant pleasing to the eye for food. So you think that, Man sits in the Garden of Eden and everything will just drop. No, we have to work for it, right? And so work is not a dirty word. Work is not a punishment for sin. Work is God's good idea and work is a good word. So what does it mean? Today is Sunday, tomorrow is Tuesday. I mean Monday. Just checking. So what do you suffer on Monday? Everybody says we suffer Monday blues. A true Christian, a true believer in God, from this point onwards, as you hear Genesis 2, is no longer Monday blues. You go to the office, you're whistling, you're singing, and your boss and your colleague says, what happened? Are you okay? Tomorrow you go in, you start whistling. Everybody will be asking, are you okay? Why? Because I learned Genesis 2 from my pastor yesterday. That work is not punishment for the fall. That work is not a dirty word. The original worker is God. And we made His image are made for work. So please take note, it is paradise, right? God didn't plong men in the Garden of Eden to do nothing. God didn't plong Adam in the Garden to play golf forever. 
So please don't aspire to retire in your 30s. And what would you do from your 30s to your 60s after you earn your millions of bucks so quickly in Singapore around the world? Play golf till you die. That's not the picture. God plonked you in the Garden of Eden to work it. So work is good. Work is God's idea. And the word keep, right, is used later of the priests who would, and the Levites who will serve their main work is to serve God. So you get the first inkling that work is a priestly duty. Work is a priestly duty. So it's the first hint that God gives us in Genesis chapter 2 that we are created to be workers and worshippers. Because the work of tending the garden, which was a wasteland, no shrub had sprung up, is part of the worship of God. Very important we get this right. So we recapture the purpose of work. If people walk to work grumbling and a drudgery, we, believe, we who believe in God walk to work with a sense of purpose that God made us responsible rulers under Him. I tell you, you change your attitude to work, you will change fewer jobs. Let me say that in slow motion. You change your attitude to work, you will not job hop so much. Job hopping used to be the number one national problem of multinational companies that came to Singapore. In the 60s, 70s, as we progress so quickly, you train a person, somebody else comes along, poach them after you train them for three years, so job hopping. The believer in Christ goes for stability and responsibility, not for job satisfaction. We go for responsibility and stability. If I can work and put food on the table as part of my image of God, as part of being saved in Christ Jesus, I should be thankful. You change your attitude to work, you will ch change jobs less. Very important. The war of men carries on. There are three, four aspects. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, must, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. First new things being introduced, death. The idea of death, the reality of death creeps into human, the possibility of it enters into human experience. Not now, but by Genesis 3, in two weeks' time when we deal with it, we, we will read this. Did you realize that man is created completely cared for by God, but totally responsible to God to work it and to be a worshiper? And we bear the full image of God by obedience. You will only reach the height of your personhood. You will truly become the man and woman that God created to you to be by listening to God's Word. Because God's Word accomplishes His will. God's Word, Word, Will, Word, Will. So you will never fully be a man without obeying God. You'll never fully be a woman without obeying God. So we bear the image by instruction. So God did say, you shall eat from every tree. You shall not eat from one tree, the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there's beauty in God's yes, and there is beauty and purpose in God's no to us. I'm going to expand on this quite a bit because the rest of the Bible covers this quite a bit. So image from chapter 1, image in chapter 2. 
our image has two directions. One, image is what relates us to God, links us back to God. You will not find your image apart from God, from being related to Him. Yet, as we find that image from God, designer to design, it is what? That image that anchors us to life on earth. Can you follow? It's a very important thing that we get this right. So image both links us vertically to God and downwards, it's what gives you, you wake up each day, what am I doing here? Why should I live for another day? It has everything to do with you and me bearing the image of God and the likeness of God. The moment you and me do the opposite, listen to this. If you unhinge your image from God, you decide to determine your own image humanly and horizontally with no connection to God. You disconnect yourself from God. It will lead to the repercussion, the lostness of who you are, the lostness of why you are here, the lostness of what you are to do from day to day, the loss of humanity, the loss of personality, the loss of identity, and our modern day world is so caught up with sexuality, the loss of sexuality. So please take note, image has two directions, relates you to God and relates you to your purpose here on earth under God. So two ladies knocked on my door in the office and said, sorry, we didn't make an appointment, but uh, can we just see you? What can I say? I'm pastor, I have to be nice. Yes. And they were quite nice looking, so I said, yes, yes. And they were the friends of Pastor Jason, uh, his Bible college classmates, and they started a ministry called Kalos, K-A-L-L-O-S, right? So let me read what Kalos is about, who we are. We are an interdenominational ministry partnering local churches to do what? To disciple young women to be confident and to boldly live out their god plan design. What we do, that's who, who they are. Inter-D, reaching out to young women to live out their God-given design. What we do. Many young women are battling with identity, insecurity, low self-esteem, temptation from exposure to social media. Since 2014, Kalos has become a much-needed voice to many young women. So, picture of young girl here, right? And bubble thoughts, uh, yeah? Thought bubble, sorry. And some questions we receive from our readers. Dear Kalos, is it a sin to wear revealing clothes? Dear Kalos, my friend abruptly cut me out of her life. What should I do? Dear Kalos, what's wrong with watching pornography as young women? I'm const- Dear Kalos, I'm constantly battling with my image, my worry, my fear. How can I overcome my struggles? When we unhinge our image from God, we become lost. And what was staggering in that conversation with the two young sisters in Christ, bless their hearts, have gone to start off this work, gave me the posters, gave me the publicity of the conference they organized once or twice a year, is in their conference last year on pornography, they found so many young women addicted to pornography. And they asked me as a young, as a pastor, young pastor, as a <laughs> younger woman to an older pastor, so what can, what do you do? What can you do in our local churches if we get them to recognize that, we run them through a few classes, then we pop them back into the local church. What is it we can do in partnership with each other? What questions were they asking? They were asking Genesis 2 questions. If you sit here and I stand here and over the past week, I think I had every right 
to live an autonomous, independent life from God. My life is unhinged. And I'm looking for myself. I'm looking for my identity. I'm looking for my sexuality. And in a modern day world with sexuality, who says God created us with fixed sexuality? Who says God created us male and female? God said it's fixed sexuality, it's binary. But the world that we live in now lives with fluid sexuality. So I was watching a, a, a current affairs program and transgenderism is increasingly big in the West. Transgenderism. And so a well-known reporter, interviewer, sitting with a couple and their teenage girl. I don't know, she's 13 or 14 years old and she feels she's perhaps more a boy inclined that way. And the thinking in the West and the legislation in the West is going down this track, both in law and in medicine, that if as a young teenager at 13 years old, if I think today, or I feel, though I'm trapped in a man's body, I'm giving an example, huh? not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I go and see a GP, the general practitioner, and the GP is obliged under law to start giving me medication and a hormonal treatment that will lean me more to the women in me. I sat there watching that Q&A, that, that, uh, that current affair said, what on earth does a 13-year-old know about fixed personality, about fixed sexuality? And we want to pass laws that would say it's wrong for a parent to teach the child, no, you are born this way. Of course, this is after the fall. But we have gone so mad that now if you Google Mr. Google, there are 40 to 50 definitions of gender and sex. And it just goes on. I heard on the BBC, it's no longer acceptable in the London underground, right, I'm not wrong, to address people through the PA, the public address system, as boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, because that will be offensive to some people who, who embrace fluid sexuality. So we just now make public address announcements as people. The train is late. You know how, how confused we are? When we unhinge ourselves from God, friends, we become conflicted. We become confused. And it's your word versus my word as to who I am, who you are, and what on earth are we doing here. God didn't create us to be so conflicted, to be so confused, because Genesis 1 and 2 tells you that God revealed who He, he is. And God reveals who we are in His image. And so, when we turn God's yes, you can eat from any tree in the garden. No, you cannot eat from this one tree of knowledge of good and evil. When we turn God's yes to no, we get man-made religion. We get man-made philosophy. We get man-made folly. We get legalism. And a passage in the New Testament that addresses this is, they forbid people to marry. So they came, some false teachers came, and preached a half-true gospel you got Jesus. But you know, you believe in Jesus, we practice, we practice fasting. We practice celibacy. And Paul says, who taught you this? Who taught you this? I didn't teach you this. This is not the full gospel. They forbid people to marry. God created us to marry. The end of Genesis. 
and order them not to abstain from certain foods, which God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good. Amen? And nothing is to be rejected if it's received, if it's received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So, if we turn yes into no, we got man-made religion, man-made spirituality. On certain days, you cannot eat fish. Certain days, you cannot eat beef. On certain days, I grew up with that background as a former Buddhist Taoist. I never ate beef until McDonald's came to town. I still don't like lamb. Mona loves lamb. Every time she cooks lamb, my favourite hymn is Lamb of God. <laughs> it's lamb. Why? Because my Taoist Buddhist background pushed certain things into my DNA. But in God, He created all things, right? Beginning with plants for us to eat. Here we are in Genesis 2. The animals will come in later in Genesis 8 and 9. And so, but when we turn God's no into yes, we got anarchy. Anarchy is chaos. Chaos in Singlish, in Hokkien, right here, is Bo Ching Hu. No government. If now I want to watch whatever I want to watch on my phone, God says no, I can't watch whatever I want on my phone, I think God is wrong, I think I'm right, I've got anarchy. I've got chaos. I've got Hokkien, no Ching Hu. No government. No government of God over me. I have become unhinged in that moment. So Romans chapter 1 says this, Furthermore, as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they ought not to be done. So three times in Romans 1, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. And basically God says in judgment, in present judgment, as compared to future judgment, you want to live this way? You will live this way. You live this way, you pay the repercussions. You think you're getting away with murder. You think you're getting away with disobedience. You won't get away because there's a final judgment. So just by the fact that you can carry on with your lifestyle doesn't mean that God is dead. Our lifestyles are rebellion. Just because you can watch whatever you want without being zapped by lightning doesn't mean God is dead. It just means He hasn't come yet for the final reckoning. But he's put you and me on notice through Jesus Christ, you can't live that way anymore. When we turn God's no into, God's, into our human yes, we got anarchy in our lives. And once you got anarchy, my friends, it's a bottomless pit. You think it's freedom, but God says it's slavery. So God's yes and no in Genesis is to make us truly free and truly full. Well, for when we play around with this, far from being free, we are enslaved, and far from being full, we are deformed and distorted. So, what's so forbidden about the fruit? Was the fruit poisonous? It is not the quality of the fruit, but the opportunity and the responsibility God put before men the freedom God put before men, to believe in God freely is what makes us full. And we're going to discover in two weeks' time when we read Genesis 3, 
We use that opportunity, we use, that we use the, the freedom wrongly. And that, my friends, is a very important thing that runs right through. We summarize, why is men, women, made in God's image so wonderful? We are uniquely made. The two words form and God breathed into us. We are completely cared for. We are wired for beauty and for food. We are thoroughly responsible. Work is a good thing. So and please, please uh, embrace that. Keep it. And we bear the full image of God by obedience, not by disobedience. You become truly free and truly full when you believe in God and live according to His word and will. So this is at the heart of worship. Any of those things true in your life? You and I must stand in the mirror every day, every morning and say, wow, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. God has given me work and I'm full, I'm complete when I obey Him. Let's take note of that. I fast forward. Most of us think that when we obey the Word of God, we are deprived. When you, obey, when you and me obey the Word of God and you feel deprived, that's a work of Satan. You must obey the Word of God and feel complete, not deprived. That's a lie of the evil one. Very important that we get this right. God is not in the business of depriving you of His God-given purpose. And so, the Lord God said, not good for men to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man named each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, notice, helper suitable, helper suitable. The main thing is a suitable helper for him. So all the, created, all the creatures, none was suitable, the word, is commensurate to him, equal to him, different to him, will help Adam complete this task of bearing God's image, will help Adam work for God and worship God, will help Adam obey God. So none of the animals do this. It's very important. The Lord God said it's not good. So this is God's first not good, apart from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we say that God's opinion is objective. When He says it's not good, it is not good. So I call this, God didn't create you and hardwire you for solitaire aloneness. Number one thing you need to ask, all the married men here, let me ask, who are the married men here? Hands up. Thank you, married men who are still thinking about it. <laughs> Merit was still thinking about it. Okay. When you arrive at a new place, what's the first question you ask? Got Wi-Fi or got wife? <laughs> you may have left your wife behind at the airport, you know, or the shopping centre, but you don't miss her. But wherever we go now, we say, if we're ever stuck on an island on our own, we'll, we'll ask, is there Wi-Fi? Because we think this is the most indispensable thing the more we create things and we, and we hinge our identity to a gadget, to a created thing, the more I become dehumanized, the more I become depersonalized. That's the danger. 
And so today, you know, you can live with father, mother, live without father, mother, brother, sister. You think you can live without father, mother, brother, sister, friends all around you. As long as got phone and Wi-Fi, is the full life. That's a lie. That's a huge, huge lie. I tell you why. Because when you die, this phone will, come, will not come and pay last respects to you. He will not shed a tear for you. This phone, though it's smart, is not that smart. It won't come and say, I feel a great loss that the owner of me has died. It's very important we get this right, friends. God did not create us for the miserable business of solitaire. And so the helper is suitable, it's equal, but different. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. You know, no suitable helper was found, verse 20. There's a note of desperation. When was the last time you were desperate? And why were you desperate? Where's our global experience of this? The 70,000 firemen fighting the uncontrollable fires of Australia are perhaps the bravest people on planet Earth. You ever stood in the midst of a raging fire, right? They had a story of a Singaporean who was working there and they were supposed to leave. She went back to save the animals. That's a brave Singaporean. That's a brave woman. That's a brave human being. Full stop, period. And then somebody sent me a video. Rain finally came. In some parts, not the whole of Australia, right? Rain finally came. And they were jumping for joy. Just drenched in that rain and laughing that laughter of relief. If you, if you have lived with desperation, you know what relief really means. You've lived without food for a whole week and somebody brings you a meal, you were lost in a jungle, and somebody found you two weeks later, you know what desperation means, you know what relief is. That's what it is. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. A note of desperation. And then God caused the man. Always take note, you can't find your way out of problems. Unless God intervenes, you have no solution. That's a story of salvation. Unless God intervenes and it's laid there in creation, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of the ribs, the creation of women. And so what do we learn here? The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. So we men, married men, Please take note, woman in the English. Huh? You must never turn to your wife and say, woman. That's quite different. Woman. You brought me so much misery in my life. <laughs> this was written in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. Right? There is no comparable account of the creation of women than the biblical account is the longest account of the creation of women. And men and women are not made as an afterthought, like lackeys to do work on God's behalf. Because the other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation, the gods were fighting as to who should do the work on earth. And so they folded their arms and said, let's make men. So man is made as an afterthought to be a worker. And woman is the lowest. The biblical account and the Christian account 
I use the word mostus. Of course, there's no such word called mostus. It's the longest account of the creation of women. And it tells you a very important lesson that in God's blueprint, that women should have the highest dignity, should be treated with dignity. So that's how men should treat women. Equal, different, but with the highest dignity and respect and appreciation. Of course, I'm fast-forwarding to Genesis 3 and the fall. So if we men ever do this, you shove your wife during a quarrel, worse still, you hold her by the shoulders and you threaten her, worse still, you beat her, you knee her. That's a million miles away from the dignity God created women to have with men. It's very important. The longest and the most dignified account of women. Physical abuse is the worst, but mental, emotional abuse, relational abuse fall all under the same category of ill-treating women. I speak to myself as a man, made in God's image. I speak to you as fellow men. I speak as a married man. It's very important for us to treat women with dignity. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother, is united to his wife, they become one flesh. We now know this is the blueprint for marriage. And from one man, one woman, one man, one woman, will come the family of God. It's very important that we get this. Three things, leaves, united, one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. When we live according to God's word, accomplishing God's will, it's all good. It's very good. There is no shame. There is no fallenness. There are no ifs. There are no buts. And so, a few things to say here before we end. Adam is not complete until Eve. Did you notice that? Adam is not complete until Eve comes along. He cannot fulfill the image of God. The image of God is a complementary one. Male and female, we need each other. So he's not full until he fellowships with women. In one sense, the rest of the Bible will unfold. He's not alive until he loves because the mandate is given to him. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So again, please take note, God didn't wire us for our delusional joy of solitaire. God wired us, didn't wire us for miserable solitaire and autonomy. He wired us for the beauty of fellowship. So tell me, which is more enjoyable? You eating ice cream by yourself or you sharing the ice cream? Please give the right answer. <laughs> which, is more, which is more enjoyable? You eating uh, the, the things that you like all by yourself or you enjoying something that you like with others? Please give the right answer. I don't know, every time I see something good or I eat something good, experience something good, I wish Mona was with me. I wish my children were with me. Every time I experience something good in a church, I wish my whole church was with me experiencing that. It's always more joyful to share. Yes, of course, sometimes you think, I just want all this chakwete out to myself. I just want all this durian to myself. Then you will suffer. 
You think you're happiest when you're solitaire. No, friends. You're happiest. You're enjoying it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying it. But it doubles the joy. It triples the joy when you share it with others. Miserable is the man and woman who has no one to share it with. So there was a musical called Hello, Dolly, and, the, and the, one of the title songs is People Who Need People Are the Luckiest People in the World. People Who Need People Are the Luckiest People in the World. People Who Need People, biblically, are the blessed, most blessed people of the world. If you convince yourself, I don't need people, you are on the road to misery. When you convince yourself you no longer need people, you don't want to open your heart to the vulnerability of love, you'll be on the road to tragedy. I promise you, because God didn't create Adam to be alone. I like to dramatize this, right? Can you picture Adam? God, Adam, Garden of Eden. And if God gave Adam a guitar, right? Adam could have strung the guitar and say, What's the song? What song can we sing? Here is my everything. Here is my all. Here is my everything, both great and small. Hallelujah. And God would say, stop it. <laughs> Not my singing, but stop it. Because I, I created you to experience me through relationships. Because ultimately, the Bible will show you God in relationships. Because relationships are ultimate reality. He didn't wire you for solitaire. So please be very aware of that. God's blueprint for marriage, leave united one flesh. Very quickly, if you can bear with me for a little while. Leave doesn't mean geographic leaving, which means that for a man to marry, if your father lives in the East Coast, you must go and live in the West Coast. If your father lives in the North, you must live in the South. Because in Israelite life, it was extended family, an Israelite man who got married never left his family home. You follow? In Chinese culture, it was like that. You go back to my village in Swatow, the houses are built like a rectangle or square. And so the son gets married, he just moves to the next room and starts a new family. The focus is not on the physical geographic distance. It's on the maturity. Are you mature enough to set up home apart from your parents? So are you mature enough spiritually? Are you mature enough mentally, emotionally to set up home apart from your parents? That seems to be the focus because it's now the man lives and lives under God with his wife and his children, right? So a test of maturity when we do marriage preparation retreat, we ask all the couples who are engaged, dating, are you ready to get married? Yes. That yes is a hormonal response, right? Not wrong. Hormones are right, given by God. But when we ask, are you, are you mature enough to marry? What does maturity have to do with it? I'm just ready. I was born ready. <laughs> really? <laughs> so a couple that I met, right? Fell in love in Australia, came back. She's Australian, he Malaysian, got married. Head over heels in love. He came back, worked for his father's business, Worked there eight to ten hours a day, came back, family routine, every night come back, eat at the father's house. Uh, after eating at the father's house, watch national news at 9 p.m. and then go home by 10 p.m. And the wife was Australian said, 
I had enough. Every day like this. I didn't marry his father, no. I married him. I have no life of my own. What was she saying? She was saying she hadn't experienced him leaving his father. Not geographic leaving, but the umbilical cord. That he's not mature enough to do that. It's very important that we get this right. Then united is loving each other no matter what the difficulties, no matter what the differences. You want to write that down somewhere? Where you love each other no matter what the differences, no matter what the difficulties you face in life. That's why the vows we get couples to make is for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And if you want to be more practical, for louder, for softer when they snore. When you make that vow, when we make those vows, it's a vow of covenant love. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Very important that we understand only God is a God of covenant love. So, when we marry, it's, you know, it's going to be for life. This is covenant love. This is not a love where it says if and but. There are no ifs and buts with God. So, how many of you are sure that you will stay married until your death or when Jesus returns? How many of you will be married for life? 100% sure. Huh? I better put up my hand, I think. <laughs> By God's grace, I'll be sacked. <laughs> By God's grace. I will love this woman, Mona, who's in front of here for the rest of my days. I better say that because she's looking at me intently <laughs> with laser beam eyes. <laughs> but with all seriousness, this is how we discover God's will. If you believe this is God's design, God's will, then you're going to be able to do this. He will grace you to do this. There are no ifs, there are no buts. There are no ifs and no buts. Very important is this one man, one woman here on earth. So everywhere I go to, to preach the gospel, from the first sermon I preach, people will know I'm married. Her name is Mona. Everywhere I know, right? Everywhere I go, everywhere I know, everywhere I go. So we are one. When people look at a Christian couple, they say they are so one. When you think Chris, you think Mona. When you think Mona, you think Chris. You must never... Think of us apart. That's very doesn't mean I have no personality of my own. I do. I'm very secure, as you can see. But God says the two will become one flesh. That's a mystery. And it will be totally unveiled because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, but they are always one. So when you look at a Christian couple, you don't say, so cool, so fashionable, so clever, so, so one, so one that you will never find him undermining her. You won't find her undermining him. This is the perfect state and the perfect design that God calls us to, that blueprint for marriage. Finally, a few things to take note. Whether we are wise in our own eyes or God's eyes, I give this to you last week. It will be here for the rest of the series. Depends on how we respond to Jesus moment by moment. So when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees tried to trap him on this. They came to ask him a question about divorce, recorded in Matthew chapter 19. So, do you think divorce is right or wrong? They asked Jesus. And Jesus gave an answer. You see, immediately after this, you come up to me and you tell me that you're hungry and you need lunch. Then I, 
I talked to you about my photographs that I took on my holiday in Japan. What do you call me? Disconnected to you. You tell me you're hungry and looking for lunch as a newcomer here, and I talk to you about my holidays and my photographs. I'm a bad pastor. I'm a bad counsellor. I'm totally disconnected to you. Isn't that true? They come to ask Jesus about divorce. Divorce is the topic upon their hearts. He talks to them about marriage. Hey, Jesus, I want to know about divorce. But Jesus says, I want, you, I want to talk to you about marriage. Because divorce is your escape clause. And that's because of your hardened hearts. And no matter which rabbi you choose, they're all wrong. And Jesus said, didn't you read that in the beginning, God created them male and female? And he quotes Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. If Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord and our God, pleads as ultimate authority, the Word of God spoken all those years ago, the unchanging purposes of God, it tells you that Genesis 1 and 2 is true. And you and me have no business tweaking it, trifling with it. That what God began was good and we don't make it any better. One man, one woman is enough to meet every God-given need. One man, one woman, right, is not enough to meet every human greed. That comes after Genesis 3. One man, one man is not God's blueprint. One woman, one woman is not God's blueprint. Because if Jesus came to usher in a new kingdom with new sexualities, he would have told us so. When they asked him about divorce, he asserted God's blueprint for marriage. Which means the last 45 minutes that you've been listening to this sermon, you've been listening to God's unchanging word for us which leaves you to only one conclusion. How are you going to respond to it? In humble obedience or in disobedience? That this is God's blueprint or it is not? And I can say it is God's good blueprint because my wife sits here and I'll say, I'll not be the man that I am apart from Mona, sent by God, to be my helper. And we've had 30, by next week, 33 good years of being married. I hope. Right? <laughs> and pray. And that's what it is. And that's what we invite you to. That all that we speak about here is not something in the air that we made up. It's because God spoke His word and His will and finally fulfill it by redeeming it in Christ Jesus. Let's stand, let's pray, and sing a closing song that will really express this.